Uh, we're in this series starting today called Renovate, and it's about how all of us are under construction and we're being worked on by the Lord. And so I was going to tell you a construction joke, but I'm still putting it together. So, hmm. I'm, I, I'm, I just want to apologize up front. We're in this Renovate series. Renovate. Renovate doesn't necessarily mean redecorate. Renovate mo mostly means, and many times means, that you gut something down to the very basic bone structure, so to speak, and then build it back out to renovate. So this series is not so much about turning over a new leaf as it is about gaining new life. It's a difference. Why this series? Why renovate? For the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about this, how we're under construction. Why this? Well, because it's been my observation that many Christians are like bad photographs, overexposed and underdeveloped. A lot of us are like that. We're exposed to so much in our culture, yet when it comes to the things of God and to Jesus and his way of life, sometimes we're so underdeveloped when it comes to that area of our life. And all of us have two bookends on our life. There's birth, and then there's death, and then we're all in here somewhere in between. But how do you know where you are when you're serving Christ and when you're walking with the Lord? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about three markers that measure our progress under construction. Every, every construction project has markers, they have timelines, they have ways that they measure where they stand in terms of their project. And so if you think of yourself as, for this series, being on project status, that God has you on project status, he's working on you, he's working on me, we're under construction. I want us to look at that. Ever since the Tower of Babel, how many of you remember the Tower of Babel? How many of you were there? The Tower of Babel? Okay. Ever since the Tower of Babel, mankind has been into building things, building statues, building pyramids, monuments, skyscrapers. But God is not impressed with big buildings. God is impressed with big people. And big people pray big prayers. As a matter of fact, there was only one prayer that I know of that ever stopped Jesus dead in his tracks, and it came from the lips of a beggar, and we're going to look at it this morning. It was a cry for mercy. I want to show you this. This poor beggar lived with a disability that kept him from getting a job, and we find in Mark's gospel in chapter 10, it says, now they came to Jericho, that is Jesus and his disciples came to Jericho. You remember Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Do you remember that one? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. He walked around Jericho seven times and the walls came tumbling down. Jericho was also where Jesus met Zacchaeus. And he ministered to Zacchaeus and he saved Zacchaeus. Jericho has a rich history of God doing miracles there. 
All kinds of stuff. Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples in a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still. Imagine your prayer having so much power that it made Jesus stand still. He just stopped dead in his tracks. He said, this guy needs my help. Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, Rabbi, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately... He received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. Now, I want to talk to you about these three markers. The first marker, and I believe we see them right in here in this passage in Bartimaeus' life. The first marker is what I call a crucible. A crucible. If you want to know where you are in God's construction plan for your life, if you could look at the blueprints that God has already designed for you, One of the things you'd see on there is this thing called a crucible. He has this for you. If you've already not been in it, you will be in it soon. What is a crucible? A crucible is a defining moment. It's a defining moment that tests our resolve. It tests our resolve. Growing up, future United States President Harry Truman never thought of himself as a leader nor did anyone else. With eyeglasses thick as the bottom of a Coke bottle, historian David McCullough writes that Truman couldn't try out for school sports and mostly stayed home, working the farm, reading, or playing the piano. But the course of his life changed forever when, as a young man, he signed up for the army to fight in World War I. He was shipped off to France as the head of an artillery battery, and for the time, first time in his life, he was forced to lead men through moments of mortal danger. How many of you have served in our military? How many of you have ever seen wartime? It's a distinct crucible that comes into the life of many men and women. His initial test came on a rainy night in the mountains. The Germans had dropped an artillery barrage close by. And his troops panicked and broke ranks. In the frenzy, Truman's horse fell over on him, and he was nearly crushed. McCullough writes, Out from under the horse, seeing the others running, he just stood there, locked in place. He called them back, screaming as loudly as he could, shaming his men back to do what they were supposed to do. The men regrouped got through the night, and many of them returned home safely. Throughout the rest of their lives, those men were loyal to Harry Truman, their leader, who refused to back down in the face of his own fear. According to the historian McCullough, Truman discovered two vitally important things about himself that night. First, 
that he had plain physical courage. And second, that he was good at leading people. He learned that if the leader shows courage, it's contagious. And in his conclusion on Truman's life, McCullough writes, and war was the crucible. War was the crucible. A crucible is an opportunity, a test, or an emergency that summons the very best from a person and reveals their finest inner qualities. Once a potential leader experiences a crucible, they are transformed forever. The crucible is a challenge or crisis that proves the leadership capacity lying within a person and becomes a defining moment in their leadership journey. What's your crucible? What's the crisis, the defining moment that God has you going through? Bartimaeus' crucible was blindness. And then his defining moment here with Jesus. Verse 6 says, Now they came to Jericho. As he went out of Jericho with the disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, that was part of his crucible, was this blindness he had. The son of Timaeus sat by the road begging. Blind Bartimaeus. That's what everybody called him. Blind Bartimaeus. That was his nickname. You know, Helen Keller was blind, but nobody ever nicknamed her Blind Helen. Hey, there goes Blind Helen. Stevie Wonder's blind, but nobody ever mocks him with the name Blind Stevie. Here comes Blind Stevie. But it's important for you to see that Blind Bartimaeus was his nickname. This was more now than just something he had. This blindness was now something he was. That's how he looked at himself. That's how everybody saw him. That's just who he was in, in people's minds and their eyes. And his blindness kept him from getting a job. So he was reduced to begging. You could say that Bartimaeus identified as a blind man and a beggar. That was his crucible. On top of all that, by the way, Jesus was leaving. Did you notice that? It says, as they went into Jericho, and then it says, as Jesus is leaving Jericho, and it just skips an entire portion of time that Jesus was in Jericho. It just skips it. it just says, you know, he came in, he came through. And now he was leaving. This was the end of Jesus' stay in Jericho. And, and he was leaving town. And now imagine that feeling. You're a blind person. Your only hope of healing has come to your town, but you didn't know he was in town. And you only found out he was in town when he's leaving town. That was a desperate feeling for Bartimaeus. And I want to just stop here and say, by the way, for some of you, that go through crucibles in your life, whatever your crucible is, whatever that circumstance is that's testing you to your limits right now, there will be times in that crucible that you feel like God is leaving. Just like Bartimaeus felt Jesus leaving Jericho and felt hope going with it, there will be times when your crucible feels like God is abandoning you. Like God is leaving, leaving you to suffer, leaving you to wonder, leaving you to die. If you, you name it, you'll feel it. There will be times like that. Bartimaeus was under duress. That's what he was. 
And he was under such stress that he did something dramatic. And that's when he prayed. He called out to the Lord and he prayed this prayer. It's the second marker that I want to talk about this morning, and it's the marker of clarity. The first marker is a crucible. All of us have gone through it. It's a crisis, a moment of testing. The second is, a, is really clarity. Just like rock is subjected to very extreme temperatures, do you know what I'm talking about, and, and high pressure, and then all of a sudden what happens is it comes out and it produces a diamond, that crystal clear diamond. Those kinds of pressure times in our life can produce crystal clear clarity in our life. For example, what happens the week before you go on vacation? You've got a deadline. You've got pressure. You want to get it all wrapped up so you can leave and not worry. All of a sudden, life comes into focus in a very clear way, and you're able to prioritize what you need to get done and what you can leave undone. Does that ever happen to you? happens to me sometimes. Sometimes sometimes someone with a terminal illness will see life come into really clear clarity for them when they're going through something. All of a sudden, they have a deadline. They realize that they can no longer take life for granted. And so what happens is they start to prioritize, and they see clearly focus. You know, Focus is what clarity is. You can take the sun's rays and it can light the world, or you can take the, a little, uh, little magnifying glass and you can kind of get the sun's rays and harness it and focus it and you can burn a leaf. Or you can burn things much stronger than leaves doing that. It's just about focus, about clarity. Now notice this, and when he, Bartimaeus, heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He knew who it was. Now, by the way, we want clarity in several areas of our life. Clarity in who Jesus is. Are you clear on who Jesus is? Bartimaeus was. This is really interesting. It says, when he heard it was Jesus of Nazareth, he had heard about Jesus he heard reports. He knew that he had been doing miracles, that he could heal the lame, the deaf, the blind, that he could cast out demons, that he could resurrect people from the dead. He'd heard these things. He heard the reports, and he believed them. And when he heard it was Jesus coming through, Bartimaeus actually says in his prayer what he thought about Jesus, how clear he was. He says, Jesus, son of David. Now, what, 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 is, what is son of David? What does that matter? What's the importance of that? Well, in the Old Testament, God made a covenant with David, King David. And he told David, he said, your kingdom will last forever. He says, I'm going to put a king on your throne. Your son will come after you. He will build me a temple and a house. And then there... There will be no end to your kingdom. And what he was saying to David was, the Messiah, the chosen one, will come through your bloodline. When Bartimaeus cried out to Jesus, Jesus, son of David, he was saying, Jesus, Messiah, anointed one, I know who you are. And I believe. No wonder it got Jesus' attention. 
You know, when you cry out to Jesus and you affirm to him who he is, that he's the only begotten son of God, that he's the one that went to the cross and substituted for us, took our sins upon himself. When you recognize Jesus and you see him as the lamb that taketh away the sin of the world, there's clarity there. There's clarity on who Jesus is. And Bartimaeus said, Jesus, I know who you are. I know you are the son of David. You come through the line of David. You are that Messiah we've been waiting for. And he says, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. I don't know too many people in our culture that want mercy more than they want entertainment. I know a lot of people that don't want to be bored. But if you ask them, what's your greatest need? They probably wouldn't say mercy. Most people feel like they're not getting what they deserve anyways. Why do I need mercy? I just want what I deserve. I just want what I, what I ought to be getting out of life. Yet this man, beyond all pretense, shouts out to Jesus and says, my greatest need is for you, the Messiah, to show me mercy. There was another story, if you remember, that Jesus told about that. Uh, there was a rich person and a poor person, and Jesus talked about the rich person coming in, in front of God and saying, well, I'm just glad I'm not like this poor beggar. And then the poor guy comes up and says, Lord, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, that guy went away forgiven and cleansed. That cry for mercy is what gets God's attention. So, notice in verse 51, he gets Jesus' attention. And I want to ask you a question this morning. It's the same question that Jesus asked Bartimaeus. It's a simple question, but it's a clarifying question. And it's verse 51. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. As we start this series, it's a five-week series, and I hope you'll make plans to be here every Sunday in September so you won't miss it. And I hope that you'll invite a friend, too. Maybe they're going through something and they could use some spiritual encouragement. But I, I want to encourage you with this question, and I want you to think about this question. As we start this five-week series, what is it that you want God to do for you? It's a clarifying question. Jesus wants Bartimaeus to get specific. Specific. A wise person once said that nothing is dynamic until it becomes specific. The more specific something is, the more powerful it is. The more general it is, the less powerful it is. As a matter of fact, while I was writing this part of my message, I was sitting down writing this part of my message, one of my sons called me. So I answered, and I said, well, and, you know, I was talking to him, I said, what do you want me to do for you? I just thought I would try out the question since I'm sitting here, and this actually happened. And I said, what do you want me to do for you? And I said, I'm working. And he said, uh, you're working now, but, Dad, I need you not to be working. <laughs> I said, okay, well, that's specific. Now, what do you really want? And, uh, you know, for Christians, that's what it's like. It's like calling up your father 
and then telling him what you need. That's what it's like. I love the way leadership expert John Maxwell talks about finding clarity, and I, I wanted to show you just a kind of a short video, something I receive in my email sometimes, but I thought it had such relevance to what we're talking about today. If you guys could show that in the back, I'd, I'd love for you to see it. Today, I'd like to talk to you on the principle of finding clarity. John Maxwell's my name. Welcome to Minute with Maxwell. What I've discovered is that many people never achieve what they could achieve because they're just not clear on what they want to see happen. I run into people all the time, they're disillusioned with life, and I look at them and I say, well, what would you like to have in your life? Well, I'm not sure. Isn't it interesting? They're not sure what they want. They're just sure that what they have isn't what they want. They're more sure about the negatives of life than they are the positive. They're sure, more sure about the deficits than they are about the assets. I would just say to you that no one can accomplish what they want to accomplish and they know, until they know what they want to accomplish. It used to be. Now, thank God, this is a tradition that has passed in our family. But for years, when the kids especially lived away from us, uh, when they would come for Christmas, Margaret would get one of these big puzzles and put it on a table. I'm talking about a, a thousand pieces. And, and during the Christmas holidays, the kids would work on the puzzle. And they'd you know, go over there for maybe 20 minutes, 30 minutes, put a few pieces together. And everybody worked on it except me. I have no patience. I, it's, it's not my gift at all. I'm not a puzzle person, that's for sure. And every once in a while when they were all gathered around and they were getting into some tough parts of the puzzle, they'd call on me and, and, and I'd come into the room and they'd say, Dad, help us out here. Hold the picture box. And so I'd pick up the picture box of the puzzle and I'd kind of be like Vanna White and there I am and I'm just holding it out there for them. And, and they're looking intently at the picture. Because what they realize is for them to get to the next level of putting the puzzle together, they got to make sure that they have a clear view of what the picture is going to look like. They want to make sure they see the picture clearly. When I lived in San Diego, I'd go to the baseball games and on the big jumbotron between, uh, I think it was the fifth and sixth inning, they would, have the, uh, 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 they would begin to put a puzzle of a baseball player's face. And the first piece on the puzzle, everybody looked at it, and nobody knew who it was. I mean, it's just one little piece. Maybe it's a, you know, just part of a nose. Who knows? But what, and then they put another piece and another piece, and the people would just kind of watch intently. And after maybe, I don't know, six or eight pieces there, all of a sudden, people would begin to smile, and, and they would begin to figure out, well, what, what was happening? What was happening is they put enough pieces together that the people began to connect and recognize who the player was. What you got to do in life is the same thing. You've got to put the pieces together. You've got to have a clear enough picture that will motivate you to go for it. Because to be honest with you, a fuzzy picture just as leads to a fuzzy life. I've never known a person motivated to get up in the morning to pursue something they couldn't see. I've just never known a person who get up and say, wow, I'm so excited about life. I'm ready to go. And I ask them, where are you going? I, well, I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just excited about life. No, no, you, you, you don't have a vision problem. You, you need to go see a, a doctor, okay? Trust me. We become motivated when we see the picture clearly. As leaders, what does that mean? When you cast the vision, give them a clear picture. 
The better you paint the picture, the more people that buy into it. Thanks for joining me today. John Maxwell here. I'm glad you're with me today on Minute with Maxwell. Finding clarity. It really is a simple step, but many people don't live with that clearness in their life. The third marker is a real simple marker that I call continuing, continuing. And I just wanted to read this part to you in the scripture. It says, so Jesus stood still. He stood still and, and commanded him to be called, that is Bartimaeus, to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. A minute ago they were saying, shut up, be quiet, quit calling out. And then Jesus turns and calls him, and then people are like, hey, all right, you're the man, let's go. That's how quickly people can turn on you. So you can't always listen to the voices around you when you're trying to get clarity in your life. As a matter of fact, that's the reason that many people have a very hazy sight is because they've allowed too many voices in, and it makes it difficult to clear, clear away the ones you don't need to be listening to. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered him and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, or Rabbi, Master, that I may receive my sight. That I may receive my sight. Some translations say that I may regain my sight. It's very possible that he hadn't been blind his whole life, but that something had happened in his life had caused him to lose his sight, something he wanted back so desperately. He said, Jesus, I want to see. I want to see. Then Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. I like that because Jesus tells Bartimaeus, go your way. And Bartimaeus says, no, I want to go your way. I don't want to be away from you. I want to go where you're going, Jesus. I once was blind, and now I see. And you're the one that made me that way. So I want to be with you. And the Bible says he followed Jesus on the road. I like that because if you noticed he started out this whole story sitting by the road. He wasn't even on the road. His blindness had sat him to the side of life as everything passed him by. You know, just like I've told you before, he's kind of like a turtle on a fence post. He had help getting there. And he couldn't, ha couldn't get off of there without help. Life had passed him by, and he probably just felt like his life was over. And he's begging for scraps from those who are moving on in life and succeeding and going their way, and he's by the road. And at the end of the story, he's with Jesus. He's back on the road. He's back on the road, moving with Jesus in step, going where God is going, says, Jesus, I'll go where you go. I will love what you love. I'll hate what you hate. I'm going to be with you. Is that how you are with Jesus? In your heart, 
Do you want to be on the road with him? What do you want Jesus to do for you? If he granted you one wish, what would you ask for? This man wanted his sight. There's some things in my life I'm asking God for very specifically right now. What about you? Could we just pray together for a moment? 